Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. So with me right now, I have my brother from another mother, fellow music connoisseur and aficionado, no stranger to the show, most talented kid in the biz. You know who he is. I'm going to let him tell you who he is. Tell him who you are, sir. Uh, my real name is Lawrence Taylor Worrell Jr., but I'm commonly known as LAW, and the moniker goes by the most talented kid in the music biz. Yes, sir. You know what it is. Check the resume, put some respect on the name, and you could go to the previous two interviews of Beyond the Album Cover to get his background. But it's just going to be straight music talk. So before we get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction class for 2022, Mr. Kendrick Lamar dropped a masterpiece yesterday. Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Been five years since his Pulitzer Prize winning album, Damn. And damn, it feels good to see people up on it. Rest in peace, Biz Marquis. Yeah. So let's talk about the album and what was your thoughts upon first listen? Um, I mean, we're talking about Kendrick's here, man. <laughs> I mean, if, if, if you've been on the rock the last eight or nine years or 10 years to, to recognize the rise of one of the, in my opinion, one of the most important MCs in terms of that gave me hope. You know, and it's crazy because um, one of his favorite guys, who is Eminem, who's in my top six, you know, the, the level of lyricism and the importance of it is stressed because here you have a guy like Kendricks who maintained that extreme level of wordplay, subject matter, cadence, flow, and he achieved mainstream success. That's rare in the business. The last time we saw something like that, and then even with J. Cole as well. We didn't see that since Public Enemy, man. There's not a lot of groups that are able to kind of talk the stuff that he talks in such a lyrical extravaganza and still get the masses to go along with him. You know what I mean? And, and that that's rare. He, he has a rare position in hip hop that should be respect. Put some respect on his name. He's definitely one of my favorite guys. So um, I waited with bated breath. You know, I just knew that even though was, he was taking his time, like most real artists are supposed to sometimes. I mean, even me, you know, I'm I'm known these days. It's like, okay, Law's coming out with a record. He's coming out with one. I said, I'm working on five different albums. So you never know when the first one's going to come out because I'm always constantly recording and, and working on stuff. And then when I see Fit If It's Ready, I, 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 give, it, I give it to the world upon release because I want to give um, the world my all. And Kendrick's is pretty much the same way. And when you have the body of work that he's had so far, um, it's worth the wait. So um, Mr. some more around the big steppers. Um, definitely going to be talking about the next couple of months. I can see it already because everybody's already kind of like digging. And then you got haters. You got people. And then you got people that just don't really understand and not ready to go to the next level with him because they think he's supposed to make another um, sit down, be humble type joint. It's like, no, Kendrick's is a, is a progressive artist. You can't put him in a box and tell him, what type of music to make he's an artist allow him to do what he do let him put it to the world so um yeah i'm with it i'm, I'm all the way with him yeah definitely a dope album critically acclaimed get four and five stars across the board in the video for the heart part five groundbreaking especially when he does the face morphing in between the different faces and pointing out the fact that it is not so easy to get a marvin gay sample cleared well, I know that because um, Janice and Norna Gay are my best friends. So, <laughs> I, you know, and this is a goddamn is true. I, I know it ain't easy to get that. So, of course, you know, I, I'm, 
I definitely wanted to make sure that that bridge, I mean, especially now after the Robin Thicke stuff, that should have been that because those guys did it wrong, but I'm only guessing that Kendricks did it right. And um, just so we clear, um, with all due respect to Kendricks, and this is not shade in any fast shape or form, um, the video is not groundbreaking because that's been done before, but he brought it back. Out of all the rap videos that I've seen in the last six or seven years, it's, it's refreshing to watch something that is just different. But face morphing has been done in videos. Um, I mean, look, Michael Jackson, Black or White, mm -hmm. um, a couple other videos at the same type of thing. So it's not so much that it's groundbreaking. I think it's more so the people he chose. I think he wanted to cause controversy. So him turning into um, Jussie Smollett, you know, that was, I, I was kind of put off. I'm like, okay, why are we morphing into him? <laughs> like, what was his significance outside of what was happening with him? But, um, you know, but and uh, all in all, it's still a good video to watch. Right, definitely that. And uh, Godly and Cream Cry, I believe, was one of the early videos to pioneer the face morphing technique. And then, of course, you mentioned Michael mm -hmm. Jackson and the black or white video. And I believe uh, young yeah. Tyra Banks was in the black or white video. Because remember, when Michael Jackson's videos dropped, for all you who are too young to remember, it was a world event. I mean, did Michael Jackson had his video simulcast on pretty much almost mm -hmm. all major networks, and it was a world yeah. premiere, pre -pre 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 premiere. Yeah, that's right. Mike, Mike, you know, Michael had the ability to draw people in, and then I think because Michael had been so fixated, you know, he even said in an interview one time, he said, I can't even call it videos anymore. I like to make movies, and I I think that was a real passion of his. And I think that it's definitely something that he would have been doing more of if he had really officially retired. Because, you know, he was doing the This Is It tour before he passed away. You know, he was like, this is really it. I'm really retiring. Because he had threatened to do that five or six years prior. But even with all that being said, I think if Michael would have really actually retired from the stage perspective, he would have been doing a lot of directing. And, you know, he definitely does a lot of writing. And as many people don't even realize that, Michael Jackson is an incredible drawing artist. You know, all the artwork he did for um for the for the insert and thriller album where they show where he drew himself and a girl watching a movie and a big monster. And I'm like, Michael actually draw that. Like he's an excellent artist. So yeah. Well, speaking of the Jacksons, what were your thoughts on the Janet dot that dropped in January? <laughs> Pure excellence. Pure excellence. I mean, again something that we all been waiting for. I mean, the crazy thing is that's not even the first Janet documentary, but it's the first one where she's all the way involved. This is really, really her having the angle. Not to say the other ones that happened didn't have her involvement, because of course they would have excerpts and interviews and things like that. So it's not like they weren't telling the accurate story, but I think Janet truly got tired of people talking for her, especially when it came to her relationships and and you know other stuff that people didn't know. There's a few things I didn't even know watching that documentary. I mean, the majority of stuff I knew, I knew all of it, but um, there was a few things I didn't know. And I'm like, oh wow, this is really, really good. So um, five stars for me. Yeah, I thought it was very dope, especially with her being very low key and keeping the private life private and to see those unreleased home video footage of being in flight time with Jimmy and Terry and on the set of various music videos and tours and to see her and Michael work on screen was just a jewel. That part made that part made me cry. I ain't gonna even lie to you. It, it made me cry. 
especially because you realize, I mean, I knew, but a lot of see, a lot of the fans, and I'm going to keep it honest because, you know, I, I tend to get at the, the MJ Overzellia Thriller fans because the problem I've always had with the media is how they try to separate the family so much. Because even if you're doing solo work and you're establishing your own career, you don't separate from your family. And the thing was that the media did a pretty damn good job of separating Michael and Janet once they achieved this amount of success. So seeing them in the bedroom in, in Janet's apartment working on Scream and then that part where Michael says, no, I want you to sound like how you sound on What About That? Because what people don't realize is that What About That on the Velvet Rope album, that's something that Michael would have did. Like it has that whole Michael feel. I think that's one of the records where she sounds like her brother the most. So it's a lot of that. And just to see that combination and I already knew the story behind the video. And then again, this is how messed up the industry, the music business industry can be because they want to keep the camp separate and all this other trash because you have to buy by label rules and all that stuff. And they're looking at them as like, um, that's my sister, that's my brother. Like, I'm not doing that, <laughs> you know? So it, it, it's just, I'm glad that she took, took the three days to really tell a lot of her story. Was it two days? I don't even remember. I think it was I, two I, or three days. I, yeah, right around that time frame, I believe Randy is her manager, right? No, he, he still is her manager. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and um, just hearing the fact that she was saying that, hey, you guys, when you guys go out on tour, I want to open for you. You know how sick I was when they kiboshed that to have Janet open for her brothers and she got her own catalog? That would have been a crazy show. <laughs> I mean, it's always been the question of everything because as everybody knows, I'm a fan of the whole family. I'm a fan of all six brothers. I mean, yeah, you know, Michael, Jermaine and Marlon are my top three, but the thing is that I, the camaraderie and everything else, because they were living proof at that time that you could establish these kind of careers and different things. People don't even realize how planned that was in general. Like it was never always meant for just them to be that. Like Jermaine said in his book, he said, my brother was ready to fly, man. He said, we wanted to do the European victory tour. But Michael was like, nope, I've done my penance. I did this. I wasn't going to do it originally, but you know, I figured let's go out on top and make it count. So we did the 55 city tour. We killed it. Now I got to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make my own stride with what I plan to do. And everybody else is doing it. And Jermaine said he wasn't even mad about that because Jermaine was already in his solo run when he did drill, when he did, um, when, when they did the victory album. So, um, it, it's just crazy because again, divide and conquer the powers that be that wanted to continue to control Michael. Cause I've always said this and I told this to, to Jackie Marlin and Tito, um, when I met them and, um, and Jermaine, when I met them in, in Long Island, I said very boldly, I said, I will always say this. If he would have had y'all around him and the, this is it tour would have really been about the Jacksons, Michael would still be here. Because to the rest of the world, you're an icon and you can say all kinds of want. The, the people you can't fool are the people that know you best. And again, the world lost the icon. They lost their brother. You dig what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Difference. People forget that sometimes. Nobody knows. That's like somebody telling you about your mother <laughs> or your brother. Who the hell going to tell you about your brother at the end of the day? Mm -hmm. Nobody can tell me about mine. Nobody can tell me about my kids. Nobody can tell me about my mother. That's just the way it is. So my thing is that it's interesting when you look at the dynamics of that whole thing 
and wondering because everybody always always said it's like damn wouldn't it be dope that if all the jacksons went on tour you know that would be awesome you know but it, it, it just some things just don't happen that way so thank god for the moments we were able to get with having them all in one place and things like that and, and hopefully they will do something down the line this year or even next year where it's a family gathering and they could be able, I mean, they do family gatherings, but I'm talking about like musically to do something on that big of a, of a scale. Right. Blood is definitely <laughs> thicker than water. Now I want to circle back to Kendrick. He had kind of teased us in the beginning of the year with the Super Bowl halftime performance because I kind of knew then something was going to be coming. What was your thoughts on the halftime show? Very West Coast themed and how really hip hop has really ingrained itself mainstream by seeing Dr. Dre, Snoop, Eminem, Cameo by 50, Kendrick, and also we had uh, Mary J. Blige on the bill as well. Uh, I mean, look what you just said, man. <laughs> you mentioned five names that have definitely influenced the hell out of me from day one on all cylinders. So it's not every day that the Super Bowl or any other big sporting event has five or six artists who I all love individually and to make that work collectively was just genius. Um, and shout out to my, my Brooklyn big bro for life, Jay-Z for helping to make that happen or making it all the way happen. Um, it, it just is another signal in the right direction. I think that, um, you know, we've had traces of rap and, and different things on most Super Bowls with the exception of, you know, the Princes, the Michaels and, and a little bit of Bruno as well, because Bruno is definitely hip hop as well, but he's definitely like a broader scope of everything with R&B, funk and rock and, and all those different textures. But to see a 98.9 pure percent full representation of hip hop with Snoop, Dre, Eminem, Kendricks and 50 make the guest appearance. And then probably the biggest hero for me in this situation, of course, is the queen of hip hop. So. Mary J. Blige, not just because um, she's earned it, she's deserved it, but also because of the hell that she's had to go, to go through for the last five or six years on a financial level um, due to that dumbass judge giving the awarding the, the case to her husband who basically was stealing money for him manipul and manipulating her and using her. And it just goes to show you um, the phoenix will rise. And to see everything that's coming to her, you know, that, I mean, she, she, just so we clear, Mary's already an icon. So it's not like this Super Bowl is going to make her any bigger of an icon to us as she already is. She is. I mean, she's she's one of the top female recording artists in music history. So if, if she would have never did the Super Bowl, another album, she would still be that. But I got to admit, doing the Super Bowl put her in a different stratosphere that goes beyond. And this goes to show you that when God puts you there, Nobody, nobody can touch you and, and nobody can stop your clock or see your flow from happening. So I was more happy to see her. And especially now with the stars, with, um, with the power thing that she's on, where she plays Monet, which is um, getting a lot of rave reviews. And I think she's up for a couple of awards. I think she won an award for that. I don't know. I, I'm not sure. But um, all that happened in the same year, which is this year. So um, this goes to show you this, the, um, the righteous will get the last laugh at all times. So um, overall, um, the Super Bowl performance definitely in my top five forever, without question. I agree. Like I said, being of a young age when all of that was bubble was big, and then to see it come full stage and to realize, like, man, this is the man who was NWA, 
gave you the chronic, introduced to you Snoop and mm -hmm. Eminem. And produced Kendrick. Kendrick, Game, Beats by yeah. Dre, and how, you know, to get Dr. Dre, this man who's been in our lives for four plus decades, and that this year is yeah. the 30-year anniversary of The Chronic. Think about that for a minute. 30-year anniversary of one of the most landmark yeah. albums, not just rap, but albums in history. Well, cross crossover. I mean, I always say it's called, what's what I call the official crossover because um, Dre has always crossed over without crossing over. He didn't play by the industry rules. This is what makes Dre special. I mean, he's he not the only guy to, to have done this, but I'm just saying more so he did it in a way where it will become popular forever. Usually when it's a new sound or it's a new movement, they usually generalize the, the whole bubble up is we're going to start this way, start this way. But if you look at Dre's career, Dre has pretty much, I mean, of course he paid his dues without question, but N.W.A. exploded because there was nothing like it. Snoop exploded because there was nobody like him. Dog Pound exploded because there was nobody like them. And then, you know, Dre reinvented himself, you know, several times and just to keep the steady flow of who he is as a Compton MC and producer and representative. It transpired and influenced a whole generation of producers. The sound quality, all of it. I mean, it has the, the, the valuables that are needed to, to make a successful career as he's had in the game where um, he changed the sonics of how drums are heard, of how different things. And he's, him being such a perfectionist, it makes a lot for the conversation of, okay, why doesn't Dre put out albums all the time? I'm like, because Dre doesn't have to. He's, he's basically the Quincy Jones of hip hop, in my opinion, even though there's no one like Quincy Jones. But if I had to put uh, a comparison level, he would be that for hip hop because, or better yet, Diddy said it best. Diddy said that Dre put the melody in hip hop production. And in a lot of ways, he did it. He's not the first, because I give that credit to Larry Smith on um, who produced all the Houdini and Run DMC stuff. He listened to um, One Love, One Love, and that's, that's melodic. That, that's why that Houdini song was, was one of the most different things. Same thing with the Fat Boy. So it's not that Dre didn't, wasn't the first guy to do it, but Dre did it in such a way where it became the norm because hip hop goes through so many different phases and so many different styles of hip hop come out at one time, but at least back in the day it did. I, I don't know about now, because nowadays everybody just sound the same now at this point, with the exception of our of our elder statesman that keeps putting out dope product like Busta and him and, and Red and Meth, who continues to keep putting out amazing albums and, and showing you what hip hop is all about as as opposed to the newer generation. But um but Dre has definitely um earned all of these plates or plaques as you will. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And uh, we just recently lost um, DJ K Slay. So can we just touch on his influence and how important mixtapes were to uh, the visibility of hip hop? Again, wow. You know, K Slay is definitely not the first or the inventor of what we call mixtapes, but without question, definitely one of the most influential. He truly, what I'm gonna miss about him is he truly cared about the culture. He wasn't moved by pop mainstream pedigree. Those are my kind of people. Because like I said, if you achieve pop mainstream success, you're supposed to open more doors for the underground or for, the, or for that progressive artist, not 
do what everybody else is doing. K has always supported the real. I mean, look, look at someone like Pappas, who I've known for years. One of the illest MCs to ever pick up a mic. You know, Pap definitely was already making moves. But when him and K Slade came together for, for their series of mixtapes, oh my God, bro. Whew. Listen what I'm saying to you. <laughs> I ain't got to say um, Hoodie Season. That's one of my favorite mixtapes of Papoos. I'm, I'm a diehard Papoos fan. That's my, my, my big girl for life. Love that dude because Pap and K Slade combination showed and proved just how much the industry needed that type of leverage in real hip hop, um, the importance of lyricism, quality production. And Chase Slade, no matter what he did, he always made sure that his Street Sweeper series was on point, showcasing the best MCs and the MCs that we would always expect to be on his mixtapes, like, you know, like Jada and Red. And, and then matter of fact, before he passed away, the last couple of years, he was doing this um, rolling um, 50 MCs on the microphone thing where he got everybody, all the new, new guys who were spitting venom, not the new, not the, not the current new wave of rappers, but the current new guys who are real underground lyrical MCs that were really spitting venom. Like the fact that Slay was able to get all those guys on one song, plus, um, you know, my, my, my big bros for like my idols, Chino XL, Raz Kaz, you know, all, all in particular, Farrell Mala, he was able to get all these guys on one record. As a matter of fact, um, right before he, he um, sadly caught COVID, which is, you know, which led to his demise, um, he was working on the, um, the 100 MCs version of the Roman thing. So he, he's going to be missed, man. He, he's definitely, you know, I, I, it, it hurt my soul when I got the news. Yeah, man, because you know? thinking about K-Slay and uh, Who Kid, all of those DJs doing the yeah. mixtape era, it just really took me back to high school, and the diplomatic community mixtape. If you do not know about diplomatic community, listen to it. All Dipset don't get enough credit for the movement that they did with Freaky, Jewels, Hellrail, Killer Cam. Started. Do not get me started on Dipset, Jewel Santana, Jim Motherfucking Jones, Cam Freak. People don't understand. I'm a Brooklyn hood boy. That's just, that's to show you how real that I was invested in terms of you know that that's the culture of New York City. I you know that rain and and that run like that early run like people don't even understand the magnitude of insanity of the real hip hop lyricism and the fashion part. You know Harlem's all, always been about fashion. They've always been on the cutting edge. I mean we have two as Brooklyn nights, but Harlem has always been the top tier when it came to that. Like they're known, known for that. And you know, that era. So going back to Slay, you know, they showcase all that. And, I, and, and reading um, Jim Jones and the rest of the guys um, tributes to, to K Slay, it tells you right there, if you go to their pages and read their tributes and the stories, man, you know, he said, when well, most of us didn't even have a deal, K Slay was, was pushing our music. Like he was making sure that, um, that that he was feeding the, the streets with, with our stuff. You know, we didn't have major deals and when we were in between deals, you know, and things of that nature. So, yeah. And we're recording this interview on Saturday, May 14th. So by the time this airs, this versus battle would have already been taking place. Uh, tonight, it would be uh, Cypress Hill versus Onyx. Oh my God. And I, and I, and I got a show tonight, so I can't even watch it. <laughs> I'm mad. I'm mad. They're, they're my top 10 groups of all time, both of those guys, man. That's, um, you know, 
Cypress Hill, don't get me started. Be Real is one of my biggest rhyme influences. Sin Dog has one of the illest voices, Hype Man Bar None, and we don't talk about DJ Muggs production enough. He's in my top 10 of hip hop producers without question. That, that Black Sunday album raised the hell out of me. That Cypress Hill 4 album, oh my God, that's a whole nother story. First album is easy to talk about, Cypress Hill 3 Temple of Boom album. And of course, the great Eric Bobo, son of jazz, Latin great, Willie Bobo. I mean, I mean, we can go. And then, then we talk about Southside Queens. I mean, I remember the day when Throw Your Guns came out. Honest was just a whole that you know they, they brought that raspy and grimy style of, of, of hip hop to the forefront. You know what I mean? That whole hard they, they call it hardcore, but that raspy, grimy um sound without question. You know, um Fredro, Sticky, Sunny Seas, um Big DS, rest in peace. Um, you know, I, I just it just brings back memories for me, man. I remember when I first bought the back the fuck up cassette. Like, I still have it. I, I, I even have to ship the single too. Like that's the Mac, you remember Max's singles, bro? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> about all of these things, man. Like this is just you just you bringing back a lot of memories for me, man. Because this is when hip hop was hip hop, and this is when everybody sounded different. You know, they, they, that's what I miss about hip hop the most because it was a criminal. No, not criminal. It was a crime. I'm sorry. It was a sin for any rapper to sound like the next person, unless you was part of their crew. So I missed that period of hip hop when everybody sounded different. Kane didn't sound like LL. LL didn't sound like Redman. Redman didn't sound like Rakim. Rakim didn't sound like KRS-One. KRS-One didn't sound like Slick Rick. This is what made hip hop fun, innovative, and entertaining. Even Vanilla Ice and Kid and Play had their place. And I love both of those guys because this is when hip hop, again, hip hop was different. Right. Now, I can't tell none of these niggas apart, man. It's hard. I can't tell none of them apart. Right. Just put them in the line and you can't uh, pick them out because, like you said, everybody's sounding I, the same. You know what I mean? I'm about so, I'm about to go to the tattoo parlor and get some tattoos on my face and get some colorful dreads and see and see if my career goes up another notch. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> right. But the one thing I missed about that era, and you don't really see a lot of this anymore because everything is so individualized, me, me, me. You don't see a lot of posse cuts. And you know that you were a bad MC if you went last on the posse cut. Uh, I've heard that theory a lot. And honestly, you know, remember, I'm a singer too. So the singers used to have that thing too. And I'm not going to lie to you. Like there was always this thing of as to, well, um, you go first because everybody always expects the last person to kill. Well, bro, I'm here to tell you that theory, and at least for my family, it's always been dead. My grandfather, my legendary grandfather always taught me, no, when they ask you to go first, you don't get mad. You go out there and kill shit. See if they can follow that. If they can follow it, then you, you got somebody just as bad as you, if not, do, if not dope. If they can't follow that sort of thing, what you're doing, then all that last stuff don't mean nothing. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I, you know what I mean, we've heard those stories about headliners getting mad when the opening act was doing damage. MC Hammer, they used to laugh at Hammer. Hammer was the opening act for a lot of people. And then Hammer's stage show put them on levels. And it got to the point. If you saw the movie on VH1, 
That was a true story. It got, by the time they did that tour, I forgot who was on that bill. They said that when Hammer moved up second to the headliner, the other two groups got into a shootout and fish fight on who was going to follow Hammer. Man, that's crazy. You dig what I'm saying? So yeah. it, that last theory, I mean, so I'm, I'm not, I wasn't trying to correct you, but oh, I'm yeah, just yeah. basically saying that it depends on the situation. It depends on who we talking about. And just because somebody went last doesn't mean that the person that had three other verses wasn't dope either. I don't believe, like, I, I never, when I when I joined in with other rappers, Saram, I didn't care if they put me first, if they put me in the middle, or if they put me last. By the time I'm done with this rhyme cipher, you're going to know my name. You're going to know who I am. And that's and that's what it was for me. That's why I have, I'm one of the most respected MCs in my field, especially coming out of Brooklyn, because... Anybody would tell you that that used to rhyme with me back in high school. That was really my reputation. I'm, I'm definitely one of the I never said I was the best, but I'm definitely one of them without question. So you can put me anywhere. I'm going to make it work. I mean, look at Inspector Debt. They call him the set it off, man, because on every Wu-Tang posse cut, inspectors are hard act to follow. But thank God that Wu-Tang got enough dope MCs in their stable to where they can all outdo each other at one point without, you know, without competition, but more so like, Okay, I'm looking for ghosts to say some crazy stuff. Mev's flow is going to be ridiculous, but Inspector Deck always sets the tone for all the Wu Tang group cuts, and rightfully so because Inspector is a lyrical bananas beast. So it makes perfect sense, you know. Mm-hmm. But you're right though. In, in, in essence, I'm, I'm I'm agreeing with you. You're all, you're all right. Back in the days, they used to measure it by that. They used to be like, "Oh, can't go on last." Okay. And look who we talking about. We're talking about the great Big Daddy Kane, my big bro. Mm-hmm. G-Rap? Oh, I mean, of course, it's G-Rap. <laughs> you know, I mean, we, we talk about people like that, and yeah, you know, you gotta, either gonna do your best and let them end it, or they get put in the middle, and then you, if you're gonna finish it, you better make sure your rhymes and your lyrics is, 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 is as potent as the guys that came before you, you know? All right. And we're gonna go over the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction class of 2022. I'm gonna give you the rundown of who's going in and then we can go from there. So we have Duran Duran, Pat Benatar, Neil Gerardo, Eminem, Eurythmics, Carly Simon, Judas Priest, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, Harry Belafonte, Elizabeth Cotton, then in the contributors category for industry figures, Alan Grupman, Jimmy Iovine, and Sylvia Robinson. Because if it wasn't for Sylvia Robinson, no rap on wax, in my opinion. Yeah. But you could but you could speak more on that since you're in the hub and there were everybody doing it independently before Sugar Hill, correct? Yeah. There, there were a couple of um, I think Sylvia had her hand in a few, but she's that but but she but that's earned though, because she's definitely let's put it like this. They were definitely hip hop records before Rappers Delight. Super Rapping was actually out before Rappers Delight with um the, the Furious Five. But the thing is that when Sylvia got involved, she brought hip hop on wax to the mainstream. So that's why we're inducting her into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because there were other, she's not the first to put hip hop on wax but she's definitely the most, the first successful hip hop on wax. It started with her, mm-hmm. you know, rappers in life. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. But let's touch on Lionel Richie. Cause I think a lot of people don't understand Lionel Richie, Commodores, solo stuff can write songs to he's blue in the face and he's getting introduced to a new generation 
by being the judge on American Idol, but they need to go back and study Commodore's solo Lana Rich and all the songs he's written for others because he could just do a residency off all the songs he's written, not only for himself, but for others as well. Outrageous! You see it, right? See my book? Yes, sir. <laughs> that, this is how committed I am to Lionel and the Commodores. My, 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 my two favorite Commodore albums is Midnight Magic and Natural High, some of the most deadliest balance of funk, R&B, and love balance. So to me, that's the formula. If you, can have, if you can maintain the aggressive and smooth side of that, then you're doing great. And that's why the Commodores continue to get talked about today. Um, same thing with the Ozzy brothers, who I call the masters of funk rock construction and bedroom seduction. So, um, you know, and they definitely set the template for that. But um, Lionel, I mean, you know, I get emotional when I talk about him. That's one of my closest friends, um, big brother in arms on all levels. So, of course, um, you saw it on my page, man. You see, we had the conversation about it when the news was announced. I text him and um, yeah, outrageous <laughs> on every level. Because first of all, you know why it's outrageous? Because truthfully enough, you should have been inducted 30 years ago. Because Lionel had already achieved a mass amount of success by, by 1991. I mean, at that point, he was already an icon before that. But by 91 and then let's say early 2000s, like there's not really much more to say after that when you've done what he's done. So he's been deserving of it. And I'm, I'm happy. I'm, I'm the little brother that's always happy for my big brother, excited. You know, of course, everybody was texting me because they, they knew that I was jumping up and down. I'm like, well, it's about damn time. I'm like, they should have been brought in here. But um, he, he, you know, he's humbled by, he's excited. And the man, and, 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 and the words of his, in the words of his second solo album, he really can't slow down. Like this is the busiest 73 year old I've ever seen in my life, man. Lionel will be on the move, I promise you. He'll get back to me within two or three days. Like we'll, we'll, we'll be texting each other and stuff. And out of nowhere, he'll hit me up. Hey bro, I'm in Dubois, we filming a video over here. I'm like, I, I had a feeling you was somewhere, you know? So it, it's really that, you know? Mm, yeah, so definitely great that he's getting inducted. And that with Dolly, even though she came out and said thanks, but no thanks. But by the time that the nominations had already been sent to the voters, she couldn't really rescind her nomination because Dolly, along with a few other artists, really brought country from the backwoods to the mainstream. And she's still mm -hmm. eating good off of the songs she's written, especially I Will Always Love You, which was a smash sung by Whitney of for Bodyguard. Well, I mean, I agree. I mean, that's why see people, you know, because there's going to always, I mean, in case you didn't realize, there's going to always be debates and arguments on who belongs in there, who doesn't belong in there. Why are we putting these rap guys in there? Oh, she's country music. She's not rock and roll. They blah, blah, Man, F all of that. I mean, because here's the thing I'm saying. I love the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it's not validation. It's not. It really is. And see, once I learned the industry, as I've always talked about when I put up posts and things like that, the older I got, I realized that the Grammys um, and every other musical institution that celebrates the creators and the innovators, I mean, don't get me wrong, it feels good to win anything. That's why I always trip people on. It feels good to win anything. But that's not the end of all the be all. Because if Dolly Parton had never gone to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, she's definitely in the Country Music Hall of Fame. And if she isn't, then somebody needs to be smacked on site, to be honest with you. 
if Dolly Parton's not in there. She's definitely, her and Kenny Rogers, if nothing else, they are, they, they are the personification of country music. And the reason why I say that is because nobody popularized it more than they did. Not even the forefathers that came before them, like Hank Williams and all those guys and, and, and people of that nature. But in the 80s, the boost and the growth of country music can solely be blamed on Dolly Parton and the late, great Kenny Rogers. So um, I, I say it all the time on a lot of different levels. It's like, you know, I'm glad that she decided to just go with it and take it in. I mean, I understood where she was coming from. But everybody's like, yeah, that's right, Dolly. Go over there to the other side. You ain't rock and roll. I'm like, no, but a lot of rock and roll artists are influenced by Dolly. So why doesn't she belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Same thing when we talk about when people were, were but me, I mean, I'll, I'll get to that later about um, when you start going down the names and the list of people who, who you think belong in the out of, out of um, this year's induct, inductees. But um, it's crazy because I'm like, who are you to tell who belongs in the what? And then again, there's a lot, I have an even longer list of people who I know for a fact belong in there. Not only do they belong in there, but they meet the qualifications because I get a lot of fans that's like, what about so-and-so? They don't, I said, um, they don't have 20 years yet. They only have 25 years yet. What about so-and-so? Um, they weren't that influential. They're a great band, but they're not that influential. And I'm being honest because, again, you're talking about somebody like me who plays all genres of music that grew up through all these different periods and being in the industry, I've seen the influence of artists and bands and different things of that nature. So, um, yeah, man, Do Dolly definitely belongs in there. I mean, and then you said earlier, her influence on Whitney is bar none. I mean, she, I mean, she's the original writer and artist and recorder of, <laughs> of one of the greatest country songs that was made into one of the greatest pop ballads of all time, thanks to the incredible late great Whitney Houston. So that right there, that that don't do nothing else for you in terms of her influence, then there's nothing more to talk about. Right. Now, I know some of the fans, when the inductions were announced who was going in, I know Duran Duran, it was kind of like, hmm, because a lot of people tend to look at Duran Duran as pretty boys coming from across the pond, MTV, Rio, and not really critically acclaimed because they just see the fan hysteria with all the girls. But if you look at the Notorious album, which was produced by Nile Rodgers, and then Seven and the Ragged Tiger, and their later work, you say, man, they're more than just flashy videos on exotic locations they are legit but Duran was Duran Duran was the biggest of their era at that time so why see I, this again this is why I don't I don't talk to people that don't understand significance because a lot of times when you deal with critics I'm, I'm being very real right now they say a lot of critics are fa either failed musicians or people that don't know enough about history because they're personifying what they think music is based upon their personal taste so a lot of times what happens is that they'll sit there and be like, oh, they were just were, hey, they weren't really that. Duran Duran was that important, especially for the new wave rock era. How could you not recognize that? Hungry Like the Wolf was played on MTV damn near every day. And it wasn't just because they had hits, it's because Duran Duran was definitely, again, what's the key word here? Influential. A lot of bands in that era got started because of Duran Duran. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what I don't know what these critics be talking about, man. They they just sound stupid as hell. Right, right. And in that same era, let's go down with the Eurythmics. Same thing. Same with them. Totally two different. It's funny because Duran Duran and Eurythm and Eurythmics, they were part of the same caliber. But I would definitely say that Eurythmics 
had this ability to translate synth pop and new wave, but with a little dash of R&B soul because of Annie Lennox's voice. Mm-hmm. So that was different at the time. There wasn't too many people doing that. So definitely without question. And then the great David Stewart who went on to produce so many other great artists after Eurythmics kind of took a break from each other, whatever you want to call it. But um, definitely, I mean, how could you not put those? Those are two, again, we're talking about the 80s. When we talk about the 80s, you got to remember who the movers and the shakers was. You, you knew who the imitators were. You knew who the, who the um, what I would call the cloning. That's what George Clinton always calls it. You knew who the cloning groups were. Eurythmics were unique. Nobody looked like them. Nobody sounded like them. But same thing with Duran Duran. You know, pretty boys or not, they they had a look that nobody else really had. And then their their sound was very unique. Not just because now Rodgers and Bernard Edwards of Chick of She Cat production with them, it's simply because they stood out among all of the stuff that was going on. The 80s was a smorgasbord, as you know. It was a smorgasbord. There was so much styles and different groups and different textures. Hip hop was finally coming into the mainstream. Um, then you had then you had that brand of what we call, what I call um 80s white boy pop funk which is in excess you know what i mean like those guys you know it, it, it's so many different layers to it so yeah eminem <laughs> touchy subject not not for me because he does belong in the rock and roll hall of fame of course a lot of this is the biggest argument because um one person and i won't mention his name <laughs> you probably know who i'm talking about because he got burned in a battle by eminem but even a lot of other so quote hip hop fans were so ignorant and like, how he get in before the forefathers? I'm like, um, no, he didn't. Furious Five is there. Run DMC is there. LL Cool J is there. What are y'all talking about? Flash is there. Who I know I'm missing a few other names, but um, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame did it right. There's still a few forefathers they have to put in there. That's why I'm like, they tripping on people like, oh, cause I said Cold Crush Brothers are going to get in there eventually. But Grandmaster Cass is not sitting there waiting on bated breath. He's not sitting there like, oh, they're going to put us in there. He got work to do. He's going to keep doing what he does. He's not sitting there waiting for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to, valid- to validate the Cold Crush Brothers or Big Daddy Kane or Rock Him. They're not sitting around waiting. Or Will Smith, for that matter, because you know, even though he's having a tough time for obvious reasons, but um, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince definitely should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they brought hip hop to the masses. I mean, there's a lot of people who I can say that belongs in, in the um, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But the crazy part is that we now have a hip hop Hall of Fame. So God forbid if all the other people who we mentioned don't get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, nobody's sitting there crying, waiting for to be accepted, you know. But in my humble opinion, Eminem does belong in there. He's met the criteria. He's had 25 years plus. Um, millions of albums sold and definitely influence. I mean, come on, Kendrick Lamar is a perfect example of that influence. You know, he bought us 50 cents. So even as a business owner, he's influential. He signed one of the greatest rap groups of all time, G-Unit, that had an influence on the game for the early 2000s. I mean, these are things that we have to talk about when we talk about who belongs in what. You dig what I'm saying? And the mm-hmm. fact, what I love about the most and why his award is, is well-deserving being in, in the hip-hop, hall, I'm sorry, in, in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is because the man hasn't lost his steam or his aggression. This is the same guy that won an Oscar for Lose Yourself and never showed up to the Oscars. 
You dig what I'm saying? Like he 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 established who he was as a figure. So by the time we got on album number five, he was already an icon already. Mm-hmm. And people try to argue me down about that. I'm like, no, once you achieve a certain amount of success at a certain level, you get moved to that. An icon is someone who is influential, somebody who has done a body of work that either other artists are influenced by or around the world, people are either trying to dress like them, look like them, or move like them. That's, to me, that's the definition of an icon. If you've influenced a part of any genre of music, you are considered an icon. Beyonce's an icon. People try to argue me to death about that, but I'm like, if you don't think she's an icon, we can't even have a conversation about music. Look at what she's done in the last 25 years. (laughs) You Mm -hmm. dig what I'm saying? Look at what she's done. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So Eminem is the same thing. And it's not because because people's like, you're not supposed to be an icon that early. I said, it, the times have changed, man. Times have changed. If you've had that much, I ain't talking about people that got two albums and that's it. Like more so because people try to say, oh, that person's an icon. I said, well, and not in my opinion. I said, because they haven't had enough long of a stretch or a body of work that's really spoken to the masses. Eminem's body of work spoke to the masses and still made a lot of MCs step their game up. And all the all the rappers of the golden era period, that's their favorite rapper. Mm-hmm. I had dinner with Cool G Rap. <laughs> G Rap was like, yo, M, that, that boy is bad, man. That, that dude, and he shouted me out. I thanked him for, you know, just the fact that, you know what I'm saying? So when all the forefathers like Kane and and, 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 and of course, you know, Kane is family to me, they all love him and them. So there's nothing more to say about that. Right. <laughs> there's nothing more you can say. So Carly Simon. Long overdue. That girl should have been in there. She should. And a matter of fact, she should have got inducted when when um Carol King got inducted. C- C- um, Carly Simon is one of the most prolific songwriters in the history of pop and rock, and even a little bit of R and B soul, without question. You know, she, she should have been in there. But thank God she's getting in there now, man. I'm re- I'm really happy for her. Mm. Harry Belafonte. Self-explanatory. <laughs> Look who we talking about. He's more than just Mr. Dale. You know what I mean? He's more than just Mr. Jump in the Line. You know, he's more than just the, 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 the reggae-flavored guy. You know, he's an institution. We're talking about a civil rights activist that promoted change and growth and a man that still looks good in his 90s. That's what we're talking about. You know, Harry Belafonte, in my opinion, should have been in there years ago. Agreed. Agreed. Elizabeth Cotton. Same with her. Same with her. Priest. Hell bent, hell bent, Are you kidding me? Love Judas Priest, breaking the law. You got another thing coming, and my ultimate favorite um, Judas Priest song, Painkiller. Mm. Judas Priest should have been up in there, without question. Again, twenty something years ago. Agreed. But then again, I, I surprised. Look how long it took for them to induct Kiss. Agreed. You know Agreed. what I mean? I mean, look, they they get it right, they get it wrong. I, I, you know, I'm not that fully invested in it. That's that's why when I say it nonchalantly is because, um, again, um, real artists of any genre of music does not need an institution to validate their importance in the game and what they're doing. It does feel good to win stuff, but let's just say that God forbid if Kiss or Judas Priest never got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, does that mean that they're not icons? No, because mm. we know better. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Real ones, weird ones, no. And we already know Jam and Lewis's catalog. So Jam and Lewis, well-deserved. 
they they don't they really didn't need it, but it's nice to have that cherry on top. But like I said, real ones no, real ones no. I, I say this with with all intent because I you know it's crazy because I was I was just with um with Jimmy Jam um like like three weeks ago and out in LA, and the thing is that you know Jimmy has always had his hand in being a part of these institutions and things like that because based upon the advice that the great Clarence Avon gave to him, you know what I mean? That's that's the man right there, as we all know, um, that that put them in the game along with my other mentor, um, the great Leon Silvers, you know, who I feel should be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ASAP because if it wasn't for Leon Silvers, there would be no Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis, no L.A. Reed and Babyface, and no Teddy Riley. He influenced all three of those production entities on every level, not just professionally, but personally too. So I really, I, and, I, and knowing Jimmy Jam and Terry, I know they're going to shout him out when they, when, they, when they go up to that podium. I know they're going to shout Leon. They always shout Leon out. So this is kind of good that start paying attention more to who the other movers and shakers are that change the industry because Leon Silvers is the godfather of contemporary R&B music. He set the template that L.A. Reid and Babyface, Jam and Lewis and Teddy Riley built their institutions upon. Right. And then you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, yeah, and then also so, let's so throw in there Reggie and Vincent Calloway. Oh, of course, absolutely. But that's that's part of the, look. That's all part of the same umbrella because Reggie and, and and Vincent being part of Midnight Star under Solar Records, but Leon was already the man by the time Midnight Star got there. So that's the same work. But they get they, they, they but they deserve to be in there too. I mean, a lot of people who changed, or again, like I said earlier, who had a sound. If they had a sound that shifted the culture or brought attention, they are icons. They deserve to be put into any institution, whether it's Producers Hall of Fame, R&B Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, whatever you want to call it, they deserve to be in there. Right, and then on the music industry figure side, we already talked about Sylvia Robinson, her impact. We got Alan Grubman and Jimmy Iovine also going in. Well, Jimmy Iovine is special for me because um, he's a Brooklyn hood boy. <laughs> Not to mention one of the most very much, you know, he, he became the next generation's Clive Davis. We don't talk about that enough because um, the diversity and range of the acts that Jimmy signed and produced, and that's what made him special, very much like Barry Gordy. Jimmy is more than just a businessman. You got to remember, he started as a producer. He's a producer. Mm -hmm. See, what, that's what made Barry Gordy special. People are like, oh, Barry Gordy just runs Motown Records. I'm like, no, it's deeper than that. I mean, it is his company that's ran by him and his family. But what made Barry Gordy the person that he is and why Motown was successful was because Barry Gordy is a songwriter first. Remember, he wrote Reet Petit and Lonely Teardrops for Jackie Wilson. And then when Smokey Robinson um, wanted to join the label that he was starting, you hear the story, you're like, Smokey tell that story all the time. He said, I had all these books of songs that I thought were great. And, and Barry would sit and listen to all of them. And he would always be like, he said, you know, that other one sounds real good, but you know, bring the chorus here, change that word. I think that line is better. Jimmy Iovine, the work that he did with my idol, Bruce Springsteen, you know what I mean? It helped revolutionize rock and roll music because as we all know the story about Bruce Springsteen, he was four or five albums in that didn't really do well for him when he first started. And this next album that he was about to put out, they was like, okay, if this record doesn't sell, we're gonna have to drop him. And of course that record is what? Going to Run. That changed the trajectory 
of um, Bruce's life, his career, it saved his career, basically. So Jimmy Iovine was part of that. So who better than him to go from working with Bruce Springsteen and all these other great groups, another group called Flame, which featured one of my mentors by the name of Bob Leone, you know, that began, that, be, that was the, um, one of the chief managers of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. He used to be in a rock and roll group. They're, they're close friends. And then to go from working with rock and roll to investing in hip hop, you know what I mean? It, it became pretty much the vibe of all of that that is included. So to have Jimmy Iovine facilitate the careers business-wise for, for Dr. Dre, Eminem, Nine Inch Nails, um, Snoop, I think, I believe, you know, 50 Cent, you know, Eminem. If you, if you don't think about putting him in there, it, it, you just, you sound stupid as hell. Like he belongs in there, definitely. Right, I agree. And then eventually, I think these acts will go in. It's just going to be a matter of when. I know. I think a tribe called Quest would definitely get in. Or P Five. If you have not listened to his Poppin' Forever album, you should. Bill Collins oh, yeah. uh, should eventually get in as a solo act. I don't think Genesis is in either as a group. And then also, I think De La Soul will probably get in too. Genesis, Phil Collins solo wise. Genesis as a group, um, Tribe Core Quest, um, the Bar Case. What the f the Bar Case? We ain't even talking about the seventies era. I'm talking about the the Muscle Shoals Memphis takeover. This was Otis Redding's backing band that had their own thing. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, the mm -hmm. Bar Case are not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That doesn't make any sense. Cooling the gang. They should be not in the rock. They should have inducted Cooling Gang the same time they inducted Earth, Wind, and Fire. Those were two of the big, besides the Ozzy Brothers, those were two of the biggest funk groups that had pop success. The Ohio players, the influence that they had on the grunge rock and roll band. Soundgarden used to do FOP. Red Hot Chili Peppers re-recorded Love Roller Coaster. You dig what I'm saying? So I got a lot of, I, 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 there's a lot of arguments I can go on. And without question, new addition. I mean, I don't think I, 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 don't think I have to go into details to why they belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or any other Hall of Fame involving R&B and hip hop. They have all three. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame simply because influential overall as a group. But then think about, oh, the spinners. How you don't put the, the spinners were the other top selling group beside the Temptations in the seventies. They had a string of hit records. A lot of the groups that we like that didn't necessarily have a whole bunch of hit records, but were influential like Blue Magic, Style no, no, I'm sorry, Style Listens belonged to that. They had a string, they had a nice little run. They had a great run. Blue Magic had a, had a decent run as well, but the spinners mm -hmm. was right up there with the temps in terms of hits. So how the hell they not in there? It's, it's right. uh, so many people I came and go Sonic Youth, one of the forefathers of what would become the grunge movement or alternative music movement. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like Michelle Day Cello. I mean, I can go on and on, man. Yeah. I can go on and on yeah. on who belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If they, if they left it up to me and guys like you and and a whole lot of other guys like us that know who belongs in there and who don't. Like I said, I'm not just putting anybody in there. They, oh, they belong. I said no. Everybody don't belong right. in the Hall of Fame. You got you got that. To me, there is a certain criteria and qualification you have to meet 
to be inducted in any institution if it was up to me. And I, I think everyone have a criteria if you're going to base upon what does it mean. And those groups that I just mentioned that you just mentioned, without question. And I'll be looking at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame like, so we're just going to wait till they're done. And last but not least, um, call it bias, but I don't give a shit because my grandfather is part of um, music history. Joy Dean the Starliners. Before Sly and the Family Stone, they are the first integrated interracial rock band of all time, rock and soul. They are the proprietors of what we call blue-eyed soul because they birthed the Rascals. Dave Brigatti is the older brother of Eddie Brigatti who went on to form the Rascals along with Phyllis Cavallari, um, Gene and, and Cornish and, and, and Dino. You know what I'm saying? So my thing is that how could you not put those guys in there? Jimi Hendrix and Joe Pesci were in that band before they went on to become who they became. Wow. You know, even Leslie West before he started Mountain. That's my, 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 my grandfather raised him. You get what I'm saying? So my thing is that we're not talking about enough. The Peppermint Twist was the rage. That was the dance craze. And my grandfather is the original guitarist of that band. So they should be in there too. Right. There's a whole bunch of acts that should be in. Um, Chris Cornell, Soundgarden. Um, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know if the Dales are in. They should definitely be in if they're not. Shaka Khan, Rufus. I think Sheik is not in either. Shaka Khan. Yeah, I, I I don't even you know that that because because she's been she's been up for nominations about twelve times and Sheik been there about sixteen times. I can't even argue with that. And thank God, I just thank God that Shaka and now Rogers, who I you know of course I'm close to Shaka and and their family and everything. And now Rogers, who I got to kick it with numerous times, you know, he he definitely critically acclaimed my guitar playing, which made me just fall over the roof that he really likes the way I play. But, um, you know, I can truthfully say after being around the, those, two, those two folks, they're not fully invested in either. They're not sitting around waiting for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to validate their importance in their trend-setting monikers that they brought in this industry. They're still out here touring. They're making music. You know, I know Shaka don't give a damn. I know her too well. I know she don't care. Like Shaka, Shaka is Shaka. If they give it to her, great. God forbid they never give it to her. She's still going to be an icon and great. And watch people try to come and do that. God forbid if we, if we lost her tomorrow. So my thing is that I'm happy on every cylinder that it's getting mentioned, but it's not doing enough. They should have been in there. Those two. Sheik was, Sheik was popular beyond disco. They, a lot of rock groups like Sheik, perfect example. Why does Sheik belong in there? Because the great Fed, the late great Fed, Freddie Mercury of Queen said, after we hung out with now Rogers and Bernard Edwards in New York City, we were very influenced by their disco sound that was taking over the mainstream. We went into the studio and recorded another one by the dust. There you go. Mm -hmm. And that don't tell you that why belongs to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not to mention now Rogers as a producer, David Bowie and Duran Duran. He produced the he produced the album that David Bowie was scared to record. You know the story behind that, right? Do tell. He had to get, he, I mean, I'm gonna give you a little bit of it. 
David had to get coaxed into that. Because y'all remember, this was the A, you know, because you know, really David Bowie is a 70s icon. And at that time, music was changing. You know, a lot of the other rock groups and artists were either doing their version of disco or just doing some real avant-garde texture stuff. And of course, David Bowie has always been forward thinking. But to go into the studio to make an on-purpose commercial pop record was a risk for a very artistic guy like David Bowie. This is, this is, this is Ziggy Stardust we're talking about. This is Thin White Duke. It's Mr. Rebel Rebel. And then you're going in to make a record called Let's Dance, Pull On Your Dance and Shit. It's like, you know, and thank God because how influential it was in hip hop. When Diddy sampled it for Been Around the World for, for him and Mace, that brought even more significance to it. And look at the commercial now. They've used that record. That record works everywhere. I, and I'm, you know, as everybody knows, I do corporate gigs. We play Let's Dance at any corporate event, people lose it. Blame now Rogers for that classic because now Rogers produced it. David Bowie trusted now and said, I got you. This is going to be a great record. Right. And it, it, it can't say it's a comeback record because David Bowie didn't really have to come back. He was already David Bowie. But it put him with the cool kids of that era that were younger than him. Right. That's why he was on MTV being played. His image was more standard than usual, you know, because he wasn't doing the whole makeup you know, Ziggy Stardust and things that he had did in the 70s, but in the 80s, he had this real cool, relaxed look and it put him in favor with the new school audience of the 80s. So now Rogers made that happen with his production. So right. him and Bernard Edwards, they definitely belong in there. Right. Beyond and their own stuff. Right. And I believe now also produced Like a Virgin for Madonna. Yeah, he did. Ain't no like, ain't no believe. He did. He absolutely did. So there you go. Mm -hmm. And um, there is, you mentioned New Edition and how in the American Music Awards this year, you had the Battle of Boston between New Edition and NKOTB, the two most influential male pop R&B groups the past four decades, everybody from Bashy Boys, NSYNC, 98 Degrees, Boys to Men, Color Me Bad, BTS, Influence, by these two groups, New Kids currently on tour with the Mixtape Tour, and you might want to fast oh. forward this part if you're binging Mass Singer, but In Vogue was the Queen Cobras, and it was cool for me watching that AMA performance, seeing New Edition and New Kids together, and I said online, I felt it was a full circle moment for New Kids, knowing how Donnie was at that record store debating whether to buy a New Edition or Johnson Crew, and then a year later, auditioning for Maurice, forming new kids and the impact that they've had and to see BTS paying homage to both groups by doing the dance moves and just really just showing how like, hey, if it wasn't for you two groups, we would not be here because, you know, K-pop was heavily influenced by that era. Oh, yeah. I, I you know, <laughs> I, I get emotional when I talk about both of those groups. As most of my fans know, um, those are my big brothers. I'm close to all of them. And um, as you've seen recently, um, I, I, I went on. It's funny because somebody was making a joke. It's like, damn, Lord, you should not on tour with New Edition because I, I went to all four shows within that. But um, it was just me catching up with my big brothers and, and hanging out because that's been a minute since we all been together and in the same building in one room. And um, and of course, um, just last Thursday, um, I was with. Um, I, I was with my, my new kid, my new kids, big bros, you know what I mean? So for me, it's always emotional when I talk about those two influential groups, the influence they have on me 
as a singer, songwriter, producer, dancer, um, how I curtail my, my stage shows. Um, it, it's just interesting all together, man, to see that both of these groups are getting even more rewarded for what they created. And of course, the lineage of it all. It's been, Donnie said it best. I mean, I can't say it no better than my big bro, but um, you know, if there was no new addition, there'll be no them. BTS, Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, Old Town, um, Troop, <laughs> everybody, Voice Men, Silk, Jodeci, anything, anybody you can name. Um, new addition are without question the forefathers of the modern day boy band. And new kids are the forefathers of the modern day white boy band. Because without question, um, Without new kids, there would be no Backstreet Boys, 98 Degrees, or NSYNC. Because remember, that was a wave at one point. That was a wave. That was a wave. There was a lot of these white R&B pop groups that were selling records. But when new kids came out, they were the first of their kind. Not, not discounting the Osmonds, but that was a different era. But in the 80s and the 90s, new kids personified that in such a way that it hasn't been duplicated like that since. So now all we have is the Backstreet Boys and those guys who are now elder statesmen because when you get groups like BTS in the mix, it shows you the lineage. It shows you just how much the continuation of the boy band syndrome continues. So to see the two most influential units of that particular thing, you know, still looking great, still moving great, still making the girls scream and go crazy and, and bring out they, they, they banners and stuff like that. To me, it, it never, it just, it makes me smile because remember, I was that five, six-year-old kid that saw Candy Girl. And then later on, of course, um, I saw new kids when I was at the Apollo. My mother won first place at the Apollo at one of the shows that they taped. And the new kids were actually um, on there for amateur night as well as the um, performance. And they won me over that day. And I begged my mother to buy me the Hang and Tough album after I knew that they had an album out. And the rest is history. So fast forward to 2022, and, and I'm about to hit the studio with, with, with Donnie and the rest, of, the rest of my big bros very soon. So dreams do come true, man. So this is, this is why, you know, when you see the guys that hated on those guys and all these different things that happened, the personification of who knew kids and new addition, that Boston battle that I, I was in my fields the whole night, man, it just made me smile. I actually was supposed to go that night too, but I had a show in DC. Oh man. So, um, yeah. It's, it's crazy. Cause you know, like I, yeah, as you know, you know, I had the privilege to interview Brooke, Danny and Maurice. And it just, that's, let's just talk about Maurice Starr and how this black man, Gene. this black man Gene. created the most influential pop boy group of all time. He helped put on the talent show, which gave us New Edition, because as we saw in the story in, of course, in Vern Brooks, New Edition was already doing their thing in the local talent show circuit before the Hollywood talent night show with Maurice. But let's just give Maurice Starr his flowers. Well, no, he Maurice Starr, I mean, listen, Maurice Starr, and I think I, um, I think I'll quote my big my, my big brother Mike Bivens on this because he says nobody says it better than him. He was the Quincy Jones and Barry Gordy of the Boston ghetto. Because if you look at Quincy Jones and Barry Gordy, they knew about orchestrations. They knew certain elements musically that worked in a in a record, whether it was pop or RB, and the marketing of it all. 
Maurice Starr definitely did his homework. And remember, he was an artist himself back in the day, as you know, like him and his brother, you know, the, the Johnson crew. So he was already, him be, I think him being an artist really helped the development of New Edition and later on New Kids, especially New Kids, because again, like you said, New Edition was already established before Maurice Starr got a hold of him. But Maurice Starr gave New Edition their first set of hits that, ch that changed the game. Candy Girl was a game changer. Is This The End was a game changer. That whole first Candy Girl album is a game changer. And it's all produced by Maurice. Whereas with New Kids, he was able to do even more with those guys. Because now he, remember, he put it together. He didn't put New Edition together, but he put New Kids together. So he was able to do more. He was able to teach them harmonies. He was able to, to say, okay, well, no, we're gonna do this kind of record. We're gonna do this kind of record. And that's the reason why if you look at the body of work that new kids had before they began producing their own stuff and before they began working with other producers um, for the Face of Music album. And of course, later The Block and all that other stuff. The first four, the first four incredible new kids albums, look at a song like Tonight, classical the whole string arrangements. Then look at a song like Step by Step, quirky pop R&B. Then look at a song like My Favorite Girl, which has a strong freestyle music element to it. Then look at a song like Hanging Tough, which is really chanty. Then look at a joint like um, You Got the Right Stuff, which is basically R&B, um, Minneapolis tribute funk. It was all in there. So that's the thing, see what yep. I mean? So this is the genius. Or Maurice, or Maurice Starr literally showing you that he had took the template that he learned from Barry Gordy and Quincy Jones and all the other great producers of his era and put it or put a modern twist on it for the 80s and the 90s with, with these two boy bands. Right. Maurice was definitely listening to the Control album and the You Can Be Mine cut in that little breakdown section and right stuff was yeah. influenced by that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Matter of fact, if you look at, I tell, I see a lot of fans and I laugh at this sometimes because you know, some fans who think, who think that they know all the history about new kids and where it came from. This is actually how me and Donnie became close because every time I would post up a fact that a new, a new kid fan probably missed, Donnie would be like, yep, Law's correct. He's accurate because here's the thing. The oh, 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 the dance they do. If anybody who knows music, when you see that dance, the first thing you think about is Mars Jane the Town. Jungle because, Love. Because, yeah, thank you, Jungle Love. But I started schooling them on dance. As you know, I'm a choreographer and dancer as well. And I'm, I'm known for that more, not anything else, I'm known for that. And the thing what people don't realize is that that dance that Morris and Jerome do, that's a 70s dance called the Penguin. If you look at the 70s Soul Train episodes, it was different. The only thing that Morris and Jerome did was they put that finesse on it. They put the, they made it cooler. So when you see new kids doing it, because new kids were influenced by Minneapolis too, like any other person that was doing music at that time that were around either my age or younger or a little bit older. Matter of fact, um, New Edition did I Would Die For You in their show. If you ever see, there's a clip, there's a clip on there from 84. They was in San Antonio, Texas. They had I Would Die For You by Prince on the Purple Rain album in their show. You dig what I'm saying? So this is why I'm telling you, um, at that time, the 80s was crazy in a great way. It was crazy because you had all these different musical things happening. You had new wave, you had the Minneapolis sound, you had hip hop, you had, you know, you had 
funk, you had the funk rock pop thing going on. It's a lot of those entities. And again, new addition and new kids on the block with the guidance of Maurice Stark um, before and after, they played on all these vibes. They mm-hmm. snatched all this texture. Remember, New Kids is a white R&B hip hop group. They were never a pop group. They became a pop group only when the Florida radio station decided to play Please Don't Go Girl on a major pop radio station. And then after that exploded, finally, teenage white girls had a group that they can scream for. Even though it's not about race, but let's keep it honest. Um, record label demographics made it about race. Mm-hmm. New Edition was marketed to black girls. Menudo, who I love, Menudo was marketed to Spanish girls. So now here comes these five white kids from Dorchester, Boston. So now the white teenage girls got somebody to scream for. But make no mistake, there are a lot of black women that love new kids on the block too. There are a lot of white women that love um that love new edition and menudo. So it's like, you know, it's all in compass. But Marie Starr is definitely the one to thank for the modernization of the boy band and the continuing influence that it still has. Thanks to all the groups that we see in the K-pop movement, which we, of course, without question, whoever um, were the forefathers of K-pop, they definitely did their homework. <laughs> they had to. Right, definitely that. And then, you know, when the original video of Please Don't Go Girl appeared on YouTube and a lot of fans were like, I've never seen this video before. And they had to tell them, hey, this was only seen on BT or your regional BT, music yeah. video shows. And then, <laughs> when, like you said, when Pop got a hold of them, that was when they went to the big director and had the bigger, better budget video. But we know, because we saw the original on BT. Absolutely. And then the thing is that they made the thing, because remember, Hanging Tough, was about to be their end all. Because remember, the first um, New Kids album didn't do well. Great album in terms of the, being contrived and it pushing it forward because it was very bubblegum. It was very bubblegum. It's, it's different between bubblegum and very bubblegum. I heard it, super saccharine. But the thing is that it still served the purpose because it still moved units in Boston. It still drew somewhat attention. But the record label had told them, listen, uh, this next album doesn't really do well, we're going to have to let y'all guys go because we can't keep affording to give y'all these little, the smallest of budgets and you're not making good on these parts musically. It's not, it's not working for us and we can't help, we, help us help you or help you help us, like that kind of thing. And I think that when Donnie and Danny and Jordan decided to get involved with some of the production the ideas, I think that that's when things began to change. And of course, at the Please Don't Go Girl finally hit huge now new kids were finally where they wanted to be and where they needed to be, which set the precedent for their next um for, for their next albums and their journey that we're still on now to this day. Mm, yeah. So before we get into Bobby and his solo career and all the upcoming projects that he has, you mentioned Blue Magic earlier and New Edition's outfits for the culture tour that just wrapped, how it's very reminiscent yeah. of Blue Magic and how Brooke Payne has mentioned several times in New Edition, how Blue Magic What's the template for them? So can we just talk about Blue Magic and their influence? Oh, man. <laughs> well, not only did the great, the great, the wizard, Ted Mills, without question, one of the most influential and baddest first tenor falsetto singers in the history of r pop music. Not only did he influence most of the guys of the, of the same decade, but you can definitely hear his influence in Jordan Knight from, um, from New Kids on the Block, without question. Russell Tompkins from the Stylistics, 
and Ted Mills, you put them together, you get Jordan Knight right there. That tells you everything right there. That's Jordan Knight's whole template for settle line. That whole, I'll be loving you forever. That's, that's Ted Mills. That's, that's Russell Tompkins. That, look, that's even Johnny Wilder from, um, from Heatwave. If you want to get technical, you know what I'm saying? But, um, but Blue Magic, the personification and the, the mechanical part of their steps, because they didn't move like other groups either. There were a lot of groups from the 70s that had great routines and steps, but Blue Magic was all about precision. So if you look at, if you look at Sideshow, you look at um, certain things that they did with the cane, and the mechanical part, the way they was moving before the song starts and the way they all are synchronized and not one step is out of place. Absolutely. Brooke Payne, because that's his favorite group, he took that blueprint and combined it with the Temptations, the Dramatics, the Spinners, the OJs, and the Whisper, the Jackson 5, of course. And he took all of those groups, put them in one separate part, and then allowed New Edition to bring what they were influenced by, which is what? Rap. Break dance. Hip-hop. So, not, not rap, but, I'm, but rap, of course hip-hop is a part of that. It's all the same in compass, but I'm talking from, from, from a dance perspective. And from a dance, but, 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 but you're right, too. It's still the same thing. Hip-hop overall, because that's our generation's music. So, mm. Rook Payne was genius enough routine-wise and structure-wise to take all of those routines and steps and trademarks of all of the 70s R&B groups and give it to new additions so that they can apply their hip hop, breakdance, pop lock influence to that. And of course, as we know, pop and locking didn't start in the eighties, but it began, it became, it became more popular um, in the, thanks to breaking in Beach Street and all those other movies that came out. But as we know, shout out to um, the incredible lockers, <laughs> as we all know, the incredible legendary lockers um, Electric Boogaloo, which featured Jeffrey Daniel, all those guys from back in the day that influenced and created the dance culture of hip hop that we know today. And of course, um, the late great Shabadoo, AKA Ozone, um, of course, Boogaloo Shrimp. So New Edition were definitely the template for that, for all the groups that came after them. Cause they would give, they would give you that temptation step, that do out stuff, but then they would go, they would go like, uh, like that that's what made it hot for our generation because when i began digging deeper into the groups of my parents era i understood it i put two and two together i'm like oh shoot that's where new dish should get that from but then it's like when they put that new thing on it like that that's and that's how it's supposed to be anyway every every group that comes along in any genre every artist that comes along the importance is to take what you learn from the past and add new layers to it. In other words, it's called balance. I tell, I tell artists this all the time. It's called balance. Never be too old school where you just totally shut out everybody that's new because you never know. It might be a couple of guys and girls in there where you'd be like, I like what they're doing. They, they kind of they got, not everybody's I like them. I'm saying like, there's always a few people that be like, yo, they dope. I like them. I like right. them. Like they, they're hot. I like them. And then don't be so new school where you totally disrespect the guys that came before you or you don't know the history of it. If you don't know the history of something, dig deeper. Right. I tell new artists all the time, like don't, don't, be, don't be blindsided 
just on the level of what you know because you think it's hot and because you got 30,000 to, to a million views because somebody before you opened that portal for you to walk through. Right. Especially if we're talking about R&B and hip hop. You know right. what I'm saying? Especially those genres of music. So, right. Yeah. Agree. And uh, if you go and look at some older videos of New Edition doing live performance of If It's In Love on the Heartbreak Tour, and on Soul Train, and there's a portion when they're dancing that they're doing the troop dance, which lets me know, like, hey, we're paying attention to you, group from Pasadena, California. Troop. Troop. I tell people this all the time. Troop can sing and dance their butts off. To me, Spread My Wings is up there with If It Is In Love as my top choreographed video of all time so yeah, can we just I talk about true same with me same with me and you know i always call troop the west coast version new edition but true what i love about true and we don't talk about this enough real quick um shout out to steve russell and al mcneil and, and john john and um and and um and i forgot the other right i'm sorry i'm right now yeah that rodney my bad rodney rest shout out to reggie. Rest, my dance hero reggie that's that was my guy reggie bad boy there but um the thing is that you know, Troop definitely, of course, they made it clear. New Edition was an influence on us. But Troop was still different from New Edition. The influence is there. But Troop had their own sound, their own vibe. And look, you can't get wrong when the great Chucky Booker is do doing your production. You know what I mean? So that, that's, that's another plus to add on to that. You know what I mean? You can't go wrong with Chucky Booker doing your production. It made them stand out. Plus, the incredible Sick, 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 sicker than sick vocal skills of Steve and Al. <sighs> Them boy, if nothing else, if they never bust a dance move in their life, and John John as well, another sick singer. They never bust a dance move in their life. Their singing ability is bar none. Them boys have range and power, period, and can mm -hmm. still do the moves. Uh, agreed. And you mentioned my favorite girl earlier and how it had a freestyle influence. And yeah. this just crossed my mind. Like this, that song could have been a good cut for this guy. Underrated, had Cole albums. He covered "Gentle" by Frederick Dino. Oh, it could have been no. It could have been for Dino. It could have been for Stevie B. It could have been for George Lamont. I'm a I'm a freestyle fan. In case you didn't know, but I'm a, I'm a diehard freestyle. All of, all of those, it could have been all of those. It could have been George Lamont. It could have been, um, um, remember, remember Lanier? Yeah, sending all my, my love. TK, TKA. Love it could have been, it could have been, it could have been the Barrio Boys. Remember them? Yep, Joe Jackson, who was a part of New Kids Camp. Yeah, see what I mean? So, you know, it, it could have been any one of those freestyle artists, especially, honestly, I see Stevie B making that record. Because it sounds like him. You walked into my life. Your love was so new. Oh, it could have easily been him. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. the thing is that um, I had to point that out because if you really listen to it, but, but you got to remember, what are the roots of freestyle? R&B. R&B. With, with just it a became, Latin flavor. It was the best combination of R&B and pop music mixed together, but with the using of the synthesizer. Like they took full advantage of that, which created a movement within itself between Florida and New York. It has a whole lot of origins, but... Full Force, of course, being definitely one of the first, if not the first, to kind of exemplify that sound thanks to their production for Lisa Lisa. You know what I mean? So it's just a lot of that, you know, we don't talk about these things, of course, but um, I, I'm glad that you mentioned it because people got to understand and know that, again, 
there are orgies. When people start going up the tangent of who did what or who did so-and-so, they don't speak about the people who were in between all this stuff. So right. my favorite girl, even though New Kids on the Block did it and it's their song, they wrote it, um, restart, produced it, they co-produced it. You can clearly tell that their ears were to the radio because that's what Donnie always said. Donnie was like on the Hanging Tough album, Maurice kind of stood back and said, hey, you know, we can learn, a, I can learn a couple of things from these guys too because Danny and Donnie were dabbling in production. As, as you know, it was certain later for when they did Joey McIntyre's first album and the production work that they would do on Marky Mark stuff. You know what I mean? Like both Danny, Danny and Donnie, both of them. And the thing is, is that they co-produced My Favorite Girl and they wrote it, they wrote it. So my thing is that you could tell their ears were to the streets and then they were doing shows with Brenda K. Starr and the Cover Girls. So there you go. And you mentioned the Cover Girls. One of the Cover Girls is married to Dino. Yes, Caroline. Yes. Mm -hmm. Dino was a bad, Dino was a bad boy. He was cold. Dino. That 24-7 album? My joint, my favorite Dino joint was, um, that's the way it has to be. Because that's the way I like. That was my joint. You kidding me? See, I don't, I don't shy from that, even as a Brooklyn hood boy, because I wasn't one of those, as you know, I wasn't one of those dudes that frowned, that frowned when you saw the girls screaming or singing their songs. You know what I was doing? I was taking notes. I'm studying. I'm like, y'all, do this because I'm different. I'm a different kind of artist. Like for me, I want to make the girls scream too. Right. That was right. part of my whole thing. I want to make the girls scream. Like, let me let me start learning to see what they're doing. So I wasn't a hater. A lot of guys. Um, just recently, matter of fact, a couple of days ago, um, Donnie pointed to this guy in the audience because, you know, the girls were screaming. They just finished their song. He's like, I see this guy right here covering his ears. Let me tell you, bro, there's been guys that have been trying to do that shit for years and it's not going to work. The girls were screaming even louder. It's the truth. Right. So it's like, you know, it became that whole thing. But me being an artist, that's what made me different from the average fan because I'm an artist. I'm a producer. Mm -hmm. I studied games and recognized games to become who I, who I am now. So my thing was that everything that New Kids and New Edition did, I paid attention. Right. Oh, that move that you just did. Oh, that song, that lyric is dope. Um, the way Jordan does his voice like this, the way Danny, Danny has that baritone. I like what he does there. You know, I was mm -hmm. paying attention. So same thing with, with New Kids. Even at the height of their fame, they were paying attention to all of their influence and, and influences and who they liked. They love freestyle music. Of course, they love R&B because they're an R&B hip-hop band. They're not a pop group. They're mm. R&B hip-hop. But they love pop music too, though, right. obviously. Right. And I don't know if you know this. Um, we're going to switch gears and talk about this unsung New Jack Swing girl group. There were a three-woman group. They were the background singers for I'll Be Sure. And if you look at the rest of this video, yes, Girl. the Love Me or Leave Me album is now online streaming. Masterpiece album. They should have been bigger. Wait a minute. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What you say? It's online now? It's Finally? streaming. It's streaming. Wow. I've listened to that album four times in a row. Kyle West put his foot in that album. And you can catch my interview with Kyle West, by the way, on here. Can I we did. talk about Wait. Kyle West and how Mr. Break It Down don't get enough credit for what he, he did for New Jack Swing, how In Effect Mode is one of the template albums along with Make It Last Forever that really set New Jack Swing up. When they talk about New Jack Swing, they have to talk about what I call the Mount Rushmore album. Make it, my, the, the, Mount, the Mount Rushmore of New Jack Swing credibility. Guy's first album. Yes. 
effect, make it last forever. Mm -hmm. I'll be sure in effect more. And of course, mm -hmm. Bobby Brown's Don't Be Cool Out. Mm -hmm. That is the Mount Rushmore of New Jack Swing in terms of what started it, what brought New Jack Swing to the forefront, without question. The girls, um, Terry and Monica, I forgot the other girl's name, but see, we don't yeah. talk because remember Terry and Monica becoming a duo and end up writing songs for um, for Mary J. Blige and a whole lot of other people as well. And the Can't thing is, is that total. the girls, yeah, that, that too as well. And, and the girls, you know, it's sad when I think about it because see, we, we know the history. So that's when the good girls came in because see, the good girls were able to achieve what the girls did, which was become the first template of what we call the 90s R&B hip hop girl group. So giving credit to the girls and the good girls, especially the good girls, because they were more, they were more even more dangerous in hip hop than the girls were. The girls were dope, but honestly, they if they had to if they had to go head to head, the good girls are going to pretty much steamroll over them. And not because anything bad, like, oh, they weren't. I said no, because they're dope. But the good girls set the template for the model of what we call the 90s RB hip-hop girl group. There would be no SWV, no escape, no black girl, no TLC. And I would say, see, I would say in Vogue, but only because of just the influential part of the girl group thing. Because in Vogue had a totally different sound than all the girl groups. They had the hip-hop influence, but it wasn't emphasized. Well, Funky D was emphasizing more in the first album. But TLC, in my opinion, was the regarding template of what the girls and the good girls created. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, Pebbles even said in an interview, I created TLC. I had the vision for TLC because I was a good girls fan. So going back to the girls, that first album that they did, um, if these games are playing, I know I know, it just, it, it, got, it, got, it got lost in the source. And that is just sad because that album definitely was the first of its kind because now even though the girls have been screaming for for their favorite r&b pop groups for so long now we finally the fellas now we had the girls that we can scream for and get excited about mm -hmm. you know and i had the biggest crush on um on on um on, on terry from um from the girls you know what i mean and of course joyce talbert was my crush on the good girls so that's you know what i mean so all those other groups Again, if it wasn't for the girls and the good girls, there would be no escape, no SWV, no Jade, no black girl, no TLC. And like I said, in vogue in terms of just the group purposes, not so much their sound, but all the other girl groups that came out and had success. Because remember, those girl groups I just mentioned, they went on to have the success that the girls and the good girls, unfortunately, really didn't have. The good girls are very fortunate. They had they had they had top ten records with um your sweetness is my weakness and um and your love is like an inch in my heart and, and it must be love is one of the greatest R and B um freestyle pop records ever recorded. They so they have hits, but more so than the girls did. So that's why I said they were able to kind of do more with what they had being signed to Motown Records, but they only got to album number two and then of course you know we we lost them after that. So. Um, so thank God that they take the template, but the template, of course, starts with the girls because they were the first of their kind at that time. They mm -hmm. just never got the spotlight they deserved. So right. thanks for talking for you and talking.
Yeah, and you can catch my throwback interview with Monica and Tara from the girls also online as well. And like I said, the Love Me or Leave Me album is now streaming online. Listen to it, enjoy it. But let's talk about Bobby Beresford Brown. I say again, Bobby Beresford Brown, Triple B, Flash B. Brown. <laughs> yes. And how influential Bobby Brown in his solo peak was. Don't be cruel. Dope album. But let's but King of Stage though. If you listen to that back half of that King of Stage album, especially the title cut King of Stage, King of Stage, you saw the direction that he wanted to go to for the Don't Be Cruel album. Absolutely. I mean another one, you know, see you you getting me today, man. <laughs> You getting me today for real? Cause I promise you, um, when I talk about any one of my main, cause you know I got, I, as you know, I have a lot of heroes. Everybody knows. I have a lot of idols. I have a lot of influences in my music. But I think with, without question, for those fans who really have paid attention to my career, there's always names that are going to always come up, whether it be from me or whether it be from the fans that see the influence of those guys in my music and in my stage show. And without question, um, New Edition and definitely Bobby Brown as a solo artist because Bobby gave me the permission to be me. The same way how, you know, James Brown, Michael Jackson, Teddy Pendergrass, Marvin Gaye, all the solo superstars from the 60s and the 70s, Bobby Brown, was one of those guys in the 80s alongside the Luthers and the Freddies because he, I mean, of course, Luther and Freddie was definitely more for the more mature audience because they were, you know, they, they were older and, and they catered more to that grown and sexy, sophisticated type of crowd in terms of R&B. But Bobby Brown catered to the folks of my generation. And what I love what he did is because he's a fan of that. I remember that's his era, you know, Donnie Hathaway. As a matter of fact, if you look at some of um, Bobby's tours, Bobby, when he was taking a break from doing all the, the high energy stuff, have you ever heard Bobby's version of him singing a song for you by Donny Hathaway? No, I have not heard it. Bob, listen, as you know, he's had tremendous influence on me as a singer. That's one of my favorite singers, not just dancers and performers. He's one of my favorite singers. I've had people come up to me, not because I tried to be like him, it's more so because you know, you think you, people hear you differently. So I remember one time I was in the show, it's like, yo, Lord, man, you got this Bobby Brown quality about you that I love. And people would always say that about me. And I'm like, well, that just means that you've really been studying me. And then because of the fact that I got most of my swag from Bobby as a singer, as a dancer, as a visionary, because he was just so creative and just knew what he wanted to do. The blueprint of, of what him and Ralph created together. Cause you know, I know the story behind that. It's a whole other subject, but, um, the whole thing of the combination of that swing style of R&B. And then I love Bobby because he was able to carve out that niche. Most guys of his caliber can only do up-tempo songs. So to go from, because I would never be that girl to go that now. Now that you are here with me, baby, let's do, like that, that maturity in his voice, you know what I mean? Like he could be that smooth and can sing his ass off and give you the ballad. He can give you a ballad and then go right back to doing the up-tempo stuff. So without question, Bobby Brown became the most influential for me alongside Prince, Stevie, Michael, Jermaine Jackson, Lionel Richie, um, New Edition, Jimi Hendrix, and James Brown. So he, Bobby Brown, 
every time I put that list about my overall idols, I always put New Edition slash Bobby Brown because, of course, his influence in New Edition is bar none as, as a group member. But as a solo artist, same thing. Same thing. We just want to do the Michael Jackson and Jacksons thing. Same thing. Influence in the group, but influence outside the group. So right. yeah, man, I can't, I can't wait for this um this 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 um the, a real documentary finally that he's that he's doing for um for A and E. Uh, was is A and E a life? Is A and E has the biography, and then he has the reality show to follow after that. Bobby Brown, every little step. I think that's going to be coming out as, around the same time as the biography. But you know, Bobby, yeah. you know, the media just portrays him how they want, and but he's really a good guy at heart and. All the man, stuff that he's gone through would break anybody with all the stuff he had to do. Man, listen, on this culture tour, let me tell you this, man. We, we, we you know, we, we, had some, we had some amazing combos together because you know, I hadn't seen him in a long time. It's been a minute since I saw him. So when he saw me, he's like, oh, shit, what up, baby, bro? And I looked at him. I did one of these. I looked at him. I said, let me tell you something. Don't let nobody tell you that you ain't killing out here. Cause he is, he killed on the culture tour. He killed man vocally and the fact that, cause obviously, you know, he, he said, look, he makes it clear. He's, he's like, look, I already know I'm fat. I got some weight I got to lose. I'm like, but he's losing it. I'm like, you can don't do no 30 city tour and not burn calories. And Bobby was there every night. He didn't miss a show. And he was on stage moving and grooving under them hot lights with them long trench coats. You go and burn some calories. He's looking good. He's sounding amazing. He's kicking ass. And I told him, I said, dude, I'm proud to be, a, I'm always proud to be a little brother. You already know, you, you and the rest of the guys, but I really just wanted to point out to people, he's defied the odds and he's destroyed the media's vision of him. You know why? Because he kept going. All the bumps and bruises that he took, even the mistakes that he made himself, because of course, you know, he's always said, he said, no, I made a, a whole lot of mistakes, obviously, but he's living proof that you can keep going. You can make the changes. And to see that my one of my biggest idols is still here and he's kicking ass and he's and God is opening more doors for him and his beautiful family. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it just it makes me smile, man. Like I said, I got again, I went to all four shows of the culture tour just to, to watch the same thing. I was watching the last three shows before the other one. It's just like and. Bobby just did me in every single time that he stepped to that microphone, whether he was doing the routines with, with, with the fellas and then just him by himself singing. And then when he busted to the running man for every little step, we was like, oh, Bobby, like he, he did it. I'm like, wow, see what I mean? So um, I agree with you on all cylinders, man. Like, like Bobby is the enigma. He's a definition of Boston homegrown. That's OP projects. You can't break him. You know. He you know, lost so much and gained so much in the process. You understand what I'm saying to me? Mm -hmm. to, to, to see he's the light of his children, of his children's eyes, man. You gotta remember, I'm, I was in the front row the first couple of shows, bro. I'm in the direct front row. I'm watching his family, how his kids look at him and how they love him, how his wife is cheering them on. That support system that he has with, with the fellas and, and, his, and his wife and his kids, Bobby can't lose, man. I, I get, like you said, I just, that's why I don't even want to go here. I, talk, I, get, I get emotional when I talk about Bobby right. because my connection with him personally and professionally, it, it just streams lines to see that, that we still have my hero. I mean, all six members of the audition, but especially him because we know we could have easily lost him. He's had different issues where he could have got taken out, could have been in jail. No, he wasn't in jail. But I'm talking about he could have been locked up for life. 
you know, could have been killed and murdered, you know what I mean? And we still have him here doing what he loves and living his best life in the court. It's only getting better with, with, with time, man. Mm-hmm. Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, Mike, and Johnny, you guys got an invitation to come on beyond the album cover. Just come on. I'm putting it out there, speaking into existence. One of you are all six. You guys are more than willing, more than welcome to come on the podcast. Now, you mentioned Stevie, and this is going to trip you out, man, because you got on me some years, and I just found this out recently, that Creeping was originally done by Stevie, and Luther covered it. Now, I grew up always hearing the Luther version, but it was only until recently I heard Stevie's original Creeping, and I believe that was all feeling this uh, first finale, right? Was, yes, absolutely. With, with, the, with the late, great Minnie Rippinson singing background with him. Maya Rudolph's mom. Yeah, oh, that part. <laughs> that part. Right. Yeah, so amazing. can we just talk about Stevie and just like, not his early stuff, because we know his early stuff and how much, much influential that is, but his later stuff, how a lot of people don't really talk about his later works as much as the early Motown years. Ah. Ah. That's all I have. Listen. Isn't it funny how we're talking about all this stuff and I have the props to go along with it? Yes. Listen to me very interestingly, love. As for those that don't know, just recently, I know you saw it, but just recently, uh, I've had the pleasure of finally meeting my number two overall idol. Prince is number one, but Stevie's number two. I sat talked and ate with that man for four hours in a restaurant in Beverly Hills. Everything that I wanted to tell Stevie about what he meant to me, the eight-year-old kid came out. Right there, it wasn't, it wasn't Lord the grown man talking to me at that point. It was the eight-year-old kid from Brooklyn that begged his mother to buy him a Yamaha Casio keyboard because he wanted to be like Stevie. It's the same 13 year old kid that won one of his first talent shows singing All In Love Is Fair. It's the same 15, 16 year old kid that was able to dig deeper into who he was as an artist because of the core progressions the different sounds he used on the keyboard, the vocal riffs and runs. And most importantly, both him and Prince own this superpower. And that's the superpower of everything of being a multi-dimensional artist. Because the thing with people on, this is why Prince and Stevie are my top two. Out of all the heroes who I talked about today on this show, who I've mentioned on, on my social media posts, Prince and Stevie are my top two for this reason alone. Because they played all, mostly all the instruments on their records. They wrote the songs because they refused to wait on anybody to show them what type of ideas to have. Being self-sufficient is a superpower that I think that every artist should look into. I get on my own artist sometimes. I'm like, no, I want you to write the song. I could write for you easily, but I wanted to teach you how to write the song. Because, you know, self-sufficiency, and I learned that on my own. Nobody really taught me that, but Prince and Stevie did. I didn't, even, I didn't, I didn't know them. The conversation I had with Stevie Wonder a couple of weeks ago 
is in essence the conversation that I didn't get a chance to have with Prince. I met Prince, but we only exchanged one sentence apiece. That was it. He said, you enjoyed the show? And of course, I'm, my, I'm like, I can't believe he's talking to me. I'm like, yes. I just went like this because he knew what I meant when I went like this because in that moment, he knew how much he meant to me and he left. That was it. He jumped in the car and he left. I got to sit with Stevie Wonder. I got to give him a pound and grip his hand, give him a hug. I got to tell him um, about the fact that anybody can come to him and anybody can come to you and say songs in the key of life and interventions and talking about, and rightfully so, and rightfully so. Those are monumental classic albums. But for me, where I'm coming from, music of my mind, characters, in square circle, a time for love, conversation piece, the Jungle Fever soundtrack, those are the albums that truly raised me and made me dig deeper into Stevie. Because remember, I'm an 80s baby. So 80s babies, we have to go backwards because he's popular in our 80s era, but he was popular in the 60s and the 70s. So for me growing up, do I do is being played on the radio every day. Part-time lover. Um, um, skeletons, um, you will know. Um, I know I'm missing some few other whereabouts, my favorites. Um, Stranger, Stranger on the Shore of Love. Um, you know, um, Ribbon in the Sky. That's what I grew up, that's the I grew up with. But because of my uncle Bobby being a diehard Motown head and all the musicians that my mother hung around, that's how I discovered Jesus Children of America. Don't, don't you worry about a thing. Superstition, um, living for the city, all the all the great songs that we can always talk about every time somebody brings up Stevie. But he loved the fact that I brought up all the lesser known albums or the albums that didn't sell as much as the other ones did. He told me he's like he said, "Lord, you know, he he's like, what he said, I was like, oh, he's doing." He said, "He said it was really really fun talking." He's like, "The fact that you know my catalog the way that you do." I said, "Listen," because I told him anybody could come into you and point out the hits and the and the albums that people talk about, but those are the other albums that influenced me. I'm doing a cover version of Make Sure You're Sure, and I'm doing a cover version of Taboo to Love from the Conversation Peace album. He smiled very hard. He's like, wow, forgot about that one. I said, yeah, that's one of my favorite Stevie songs, man. So again, for four hours, hanging with Stevie, to tell him everything he meant to me, and for us to exchange information, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I could sit here all day and talk about the magic of his corporate and how it changed me and the fact that he didn't allow people to box him in. He's done every style of music, classical, jazz, funk, pop, R&B, country, Latin. And we can name each song for each one. For Latin, another star. La, 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 that's, that's Latin. Straight up funk, all day sucker. Straight up superstition. That's funk and R&B and soul. Then you got Pastime Paradise, Hawaiian Island, that whole, you know, the whole vibe of that. Then you got Contusion, which is an instrumental, but that's straight up jazz fusion. Like then you got, then you got um gospel, loves in need of love today. You know what I mean? The whole aspect, he gave you every style of music. And that's Prince's hero, just so we clear, in case nobody didn't know. So now it makes sense why law is who he is. You understand mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So even though Prince being my number one hero, it still ties into Stevie because Stevie is Prince's biggest influence. 
You dig what I'm saying? Right. Then you got a, then you get a record like um, you get a record like um, like I never dreamed you'd leave in summer. That's a straight up pop ballad. It's just it's just beautiful and and it has a somber tone to it. Like Stevie can give you all that. Then you have Village Ghetto Land, which is straight up Bach Brahms symphony music. Would you like to go with me? Like and yes, mm. just nothing but straight. So. Again, I don't want to make it too long of a point, but um, I'm just excited because it's funny you brought it up because, um, you know, everybody's been sending me emails and texts. They, you know, they were they were happy for me. They couldn't believe that I actually got a chance to hang with with one of the most important influences of my career as an artist and a producer. And, you know, I'm st I'm still tripping out over these guys. I'm talking to you and reminiscing just the fact that I was just in L.A. in Beverly Hills. Um, hanging out with with my idol and asking him every question I always wanted to ask him um, as, a, as a kid who was training his mind as a producer and a songwriter. And Stevie answered all of my questions. And his memory is sharp as a tack now. Like he remembers everything in terms of like what he played on. What, I asked him what keyboards he used for certain things. I asked him what drum set he used. It, it, it was just dope, man. So um, again, um, happy birthday once again. His birthday was yesterday. Happy birthday. Um, to one of the greatest tourists to ever walk the face of this earth, Steve Lynn Morris, a.k.a. Stevie Wonder. Mm. And I want to talk about this unsung girl group who I felt they could have had more success after the debut album. And they were unique because they were a duo. You don't really see a lot of duos. I'm talking about Jeanne. Oh, Jeanne was very influential. I, thank you for bringing that up too, because we, we don't mention him enough as well. And a lot of that credit, besides their awesome vocal dynamic, one was more smooth, one was more aggressive, but they both can be each, they both can do aggressive as well. Like they can both do each other's style. The vibe, listen to the vibe, it's funny, listen to the one of their songs, listen to the vibe. vibe. They're, you know, but that credit equally goes to the incredible. The incomparable, my Jersey big bro, KG. K motherfucking G, Devon Mills. He's in my top ten of favorite producers of all time. Cause KG and the Devon Mills sound that he provided for Janae, Coffee Brown, um Jaheem. Next, that whole period, man. I, I tell him every time I see him, like we, we are, you know, we, we so close now. So I'm more just talking about stuff, but um. I made sure I gave him his flowers the first time we met before we, me and him became close. That guy, you know what I mean? So that credit goes to him as well because Jeanne only had two albums and those two albums were so classic. Listen, listen to a song like Crush, Request Line, um, Groove Thing, um, Hey Mr. DJ. That smooth club, roller skate, funk, you know, disco kind of vibe but it still had that hip hop tone to it. Mm -hmm. Like KG is a genius, man. Nobody can tell me nothing different. KG's a genius. Like yeah. he, he literally made that thing pop. But Jeanne, their look, their style, again, their vibe, going back to the day, they had a song called Listen to the Vibe. That, they, they knew what they were giving off. Cause you gotta remember that, that's, that's the word. See, it's so, let, me just, let me just detour real quick. It's so funny when I hear words like vibe and bro. You know why I say that? Because these these new guys treat these words like they're new. I'm like, man, those words ain't new. That slang word ain't new. Oh, it's vibe. That's a vibe. That, that's been around forever. 
hey, what's up? What's happening, bro? That's been around forever. So it's crazy how Janae created that song. And now when we describe certain songs, we say, oh, that song, that's a vibe right there. That's a vibe. That's a vibe right there. Mm-hmm. But Janae had a song with the with the word vibe in it. It personified what their whole thing was because we we heard the obvious R and B textures. We heard the R the, the obvious um, soulfulness of it and the, the disco vibe with the, with the four on the floor bat beat and all that kind of stuff. But you couldn't really put a category on them either. Mm-hmm. So that, I agree with you a thousand percent. They're definitely severely underrated and we don't talk about them enough. I do, but you know, when I say we, I talk about when they bring up girl groups and stuff like that, somehow they seem to leave Jeanne out, but I'm glad that you brought it up because I agree with you a thousand percent. Right, and you mentioned how their first two albums, No Skips, they joined the rare air of, to me, intro. Their first two albums, No Skips. Kenny Green, was a monster. Yeah. We, we were robbed of having a Kenny Green solo album because intro uh, was already putting yeah. in the work with Mary J. Blige and Shinehead before their debut dropped in 93. Okay, now absolutely. Intro, man. Who another another you just you just two doors on my mouth like you usually do. I love it. <laughs> because that's true. Intro, absolutely. First first two albums, classics on every level, every level. Production, Kenny Green songwriting, his voice textures, you know, all those things of being the brainchild, very similar to um, just being a personification. Like I told you about Ted Mills earlier, being his voice being a personification for Blue Magic. Same thing when it comes to intro, Kenny Green, his sound, um, his overall vibe that he gave to other artists. It's crazy because I listened to Love, Love No Limit by Mary J. Blige, which he wrote. And it's crazy because as much as we hear Mary J. Blige's voice, I can easily hear him and how he wrote it. I can hear his voice. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, that made sense because I interviewed Buddy for intro and he told me that Let Me Be The One was originally supposed to go for Mary J on What's The 411, but they ran out of time to put that on. So they ended up putting it on for them. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I call those the great mistakes. Great mistakes, um, time expenditures because the budget has to be met and deadlines have to be met. So a lot of the great songs that we normally don't get or were turned down, because you know a lot there's a lot of those stories too. A lot of great songs that were turned down by other artists and then somebody came along and had a hit with it. All that shit is involved. It's all there. Mm-hmm. And real quickly, uh, before we close and talk about what you got going, I want to talk about this one member of New Edition, who, for me personally identify with the most and he business acumen crazy hoop head sports head like crazy mr michael Bivens. mr michael Bivens. a big bro for life oh man mike biv what can you say about the ultimate hustler what can you say about one of the illest dudes to ever play the sport number one because as we know i mean everybody knows the history and story by now because truth be told without question um had mike didn't join his band of brothers and and use his baritone voice and his dance moves to sing with his unit without question he would have definitely been one of the greatest nba stars in the history of the sport is he definitely a street ball legend without question very much like Earl Manigault, I, I put I put my big brother Biv 
in that whole cir um, circle right there. If we talk about hood basketball legends, he should have an M1. If they remember, you know how M1 and, and NBA Street for the PlayStation video games had all the playable characters and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, he should be a playable character. Mm -hmm. He should be a playable character. Yeah, I want Bib to just put out a book, and I will get the audio book just to hear his narration. Well, yeah, he's working on the documentaries coming soon. Um, the, the hustle documentary is coming out. Like he, he's literally, I think he's on the finishing touches of it. But um, Biv um, always been supportive of me. That's why she's That's why I said when you talk about my guys, I get into that place because you know no one can tell me that my big brothers don't love me. Whether it's new dish or new kids on the block, it's pretty clear. I brag about it. I talk about it. You know, my big brothers love me, and I love the hell out of them, especially Biv and Ralph. Because um, they've always been very supportive of me. They've given me advice. You know, they, they've always, you know, give the props and always be like, yeah, Law, Law got our blueprint down. Like, he, he's, he's going to be another one to keep it going if we ever decide to not ever do it, which they don't, which they won't. But the thing is that um, Bib has just always looked out for me, man. That, that, again, that's my big brother for real. He's always looked out, always giving game, you know, always just hitting me up and making sure that I'm good and checking on me and, and things of that caliber. Um, that's just true to, to, to the Leo that he is. And remember, my daughter's a Leo, so I relate. That's why it's almost, and Donnie Wahlberg is a Leo too. So now you see why I'm close to those guys. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. My twin daughters being Leos, Donnie being a Leo, and Biff being a Leo. And I'm a Scorpio. But the thing is, is that us Scorpios and Leos are very much, we, 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 you know what it is? We love hard. We really care. We really do care. We care about people. And Biff, Always fly, stay fly forever. <laughs> always, always fly. So when he's like, like yo, he said, I'm no king to one of the shows. Like yo, that jacket is hard. I'm like, oh wow. If Biff said my jacket is hard, I'm doing something right. That's big bro, little bro stuff. You know what I mean? So, and not to mention, we don't talk about his credo as a singer because here's the funny thing. And I, I've been trying to correct people for so long. People always think that, oh, Biff and Ronnie don't sing. Um, yes, they do. They do sing on these records. That's the only thing I like about the movie. And I told him that. I said, I'm trying to make it seem like, oh, Ralph. I said, no, that's not true. I said, Biv and Ron, on the, especially on the Christmas album, people didn't even realize. I'm like, that's them singing Chris on the Christmas Around the World. Biv sings the first part. And they were like, oh, I didn't know Biv could sing like that. I said, Biv sings, but he'll tell you himself. In the, in the realm of being a lead singer, he's not a Johnny Gill or a Ralph or a Bobby or a Ricky. He ain't that guy. He's not going to give you no vocal riffs. He ain't going to give you that, that texture. But when you give Biv or Ron a line, they kill it. They're singers. You don't be in a group of no 30, no 40 plus years and not learn something about your voice. They same backgrounds on these records. So mm -hmm. credit goes to Biv. I always say that Ron got more leads than Biv did, but Biv's vocal tone was always dope to me. Listen to a song like um, Marianne. Marianne is my favorite new edition song because it's, it's the first song where you hear all five members sing lead. And Biv and Ron does the bridge, which is, I know my life won't be the same, but if you hear me call your name, girl, that's Biv singing that part. And Biv sounded good. So I'm going to Biv can't sing. I'm like, Biv sounded good. Keep in mind, I, I point that record out because there was no auto-tune or none of that back then. You couldn't fix no vocals. You had to sing it the way you have to sing it. So mm -hmm. if that don't give his proven ground as a singer, I don't know what is. Like I said, he's not a lead singer. That's not his job. Right. Get a couple of lines, do a couple of raps, and he does his steps, and he and he plays his role. He's always said, he said, I know what my role is. I'm the baritone bass singer for certain parts in the song, 
popcorn love. I keep thinking. Contrast the, the, the Jermaine part to um Ralph Michael part. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's so I'm glad that you brought him up. Like I I I love that dude so much, man. Like I said, he's always looked out for me. That's my big brother for life. He's always um giving me advice, giving me game. He supports me. He's always co-signed my work. He's posting me up on his page. You know, um, when, when, when me and my crew did the poison routine and we got a lot of love from the audience, like, oh, that's Lord that everybody knew. But he, you know, he didn't have to do that. I didn't ask him to do any of that. Just right. so we clear. I don't ask any of my my big bros who are my idols to post me or do any of that stuff. I don't ask them to do any of that. That comes from the heart because if I'm living up to the example of how much these guys have influenced me, then I'm doing my job. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah, because if you look at the Poison album cover, Mike was wearing Timberlands for Tim's really took off. And then the jacket he wore, he made sure to have new edition shown in the front so that way they be like hey even though everybody's doing their individual thing it's all about the tree which is new edition but let let me let me add something more to that i'm I'm, I'm gonna let let it go um the timberlands part yeah he definitely in terms of being on the album cover yeah but you gotta remember and i think you know this already that's a new york thing especially on a brooklyn level because the, the 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 guys who really popularized timberland boots that credit goes to all of my big brothers in the Mighty Mighty Boot Camp Click, Duck Down Records, Healthy Skelter, Smith and Wesson, Buckshot. They started boot camp. They started Timberlands and Fatigues. Army Fatigue clothes were not popular in the streets until those guys did it because that's the personification of what we wore in the street. Because everybody's like, "What y'all guys going to war?" I said, "Yeah, there's a war in the streets." And, that, and as you know, that's all another subject for us to talk about. But um, Bootcamp Click started Timberlands and Fatigues without, in terms of popularity. There were other guys that were wearing it in Brooklyn, New York, but once we saw the video with them with the green beret um, camouflage pants on and, and that and the Timberlands, that became the standard look in hip hop for the next two to three years without question. So that credit ultimately automatically goes to all of the members of the bootcamp click. Rest in peace to my big brother, Sean Price. Um, one, one, one half of Health Skeleton. Same thing. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, shout outs before we wrap. What projects you got coming up, bro, and your socials? Um, Humanity 101. The album is coming. Um, we, we, we're almost finished with everything. I know it's supposed to come out this month, but we've been working real hard on all these shows that we got coming up on the corporate scene and on the, um, the regular open to the public shows that we got coming up. Um, we have a sold out show on June on June 6th in Minneapolis, which is the day before Prince's birthday. So I'm going to be doing um, about five of my originals. And then we got a whole incredible, crazy ass Prince tribute set that we're doing. So um, I can't tell nobody about that, but um, it's definitely. So for those who live in Minneapolis, um, the Minnesota Music Cafe, we're going to be there June, June 6th at the Minnesota Music Cafe. And then also I got four more albums coming out and I got a bunch of different jazz. I got a jazz fusion. Jazz Fusion Project, I'm coming out with John Patitucci. Um, I have an all hip hop album coming out. Um, I got more stuff coming out with my pop country artist, Arizona Lindsay. I also have another project working on with my Latin um, artist, um, Tina Torres. Um, so I have, a, I have a lot of stuff going on. I'm a pretty bu- I've, been a busy, I've been a pretty busy guy these last couple of months. Cause even though I've been hanging out with new kids and, and new edition, a lot of fans on the blockhead side already know that I'm going to be working with Donnie Wahlberg possibly for this next new kids on the block record. So mm. 
There you go. Yeah, it's a lot. So God is good. It's a lot of great stuff happening and opening up for me right now. So I got to tell people to stay tuned to my page, you know, Planet 12 Law on Instagram, Planet 12 Law on Twitter, um, Planet 12, I'm not, Law Planet 12 on YouTube. So let me get that straight and make sure. Planet 12 Law on Instagram, Planet 12 Law on Twitter, Law Planet 12 on YouTube, and of course, Facebook dot com slash law planet 12 and that's where they can find me all my music is on spotify um soundcloud for exclusives so of course planet 12 law law planet 12 you can put it in and, and it'll come right up it is my bro always got some cooking you can catch this interview wherever you stream podcasts and on youtube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover once again my pleasure chop talking shop with my brother from another mother bk to the fullest law Thank you, you know. coming Thank on. you so much. Bro. Thank yes, you so sir. much for everything. I appreciate you. Love you. Keep continuing to rep for the culture because as always, you are doing an amazing job, you know, giving light to me coming into the game late as a podcaster, but knowing that the examples that you and so many other other guys who I love keeping the culture alive on every level, um, be it R&B, um, pop, or anything that we can talk about in the match Patrick at the end of the day, us as a people, we created it. So you're definitely a forerunner in this game in terms of your platform. And thank you for always inviting me. You know, I always say that us creators, we create our we create our own tables and our own seats, but it always feels good to be invited to somebody else's table who you have a lot of common ground with. So brother, I thank you so much. And I love you, man. Thank you. Yes, sir. 